0: Hello, and welcome to the So, You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Today's guest is Adrienne Michaelis, a PhD candidate with the University of Maryland's Department of Anthropology. I met Adrian while diving in Maryland and we worked together to help restore the oyster populations of the Chesapeake Bay. Since our time diving together in the bay's waters, Adrian has gone back to school to pursue her PhD and in the process has done quite a bit of traveling. She has now combined her love of science and oysters with her love of talking to people and made a beautiful creation that is her PhD dissertation. In this episode, we chat about diving the Coral Triangle in Indonesia, why grad school was the best option for her and how oyster aquaculture is changing the watery landscape of the coasts of the U.S. Adrienne, welcome
1: to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation.
0: Yeah. So I kind of want to start off where you and I left off when last time I saw you, you were going to have some epic travel adventures. You just started your PhD, and you were supposed to be heading to Africa, and plans changed, and you ended up doing world travels but elsewhere so kind of where did that go um well so
1: i started my phd and was initially starting with a project that would be um based in mozambique but kind of through a a variety of circumstances that didn't happen and in thinking about my own research and what was interesting and kind of the networks i had already established that's where i started doing my phd research focusing on oysters and people that work with oysters um, so for my research side of things, for my own project, I've been working along the Atlantic coast in Maryland and Virginia, and then down along the Gulf now, and I'll be headed up to New England um, in a few months to to work up there. But when I went back to school, also kind of took advantage of the opportunity to get outside of the u s. And so I, as a student, took part in a a course that's a public policy course based at the University of Maryland. but we go to Indonesia. And so did that first as a student and then had the, the chance to come back as an assistant for the course. And so I'll be we took this year off, but I'll be going back again for my third third tour this coming winter. Sumatra, Bali, um, Sulawesi and Java and kind of look at environmental development um, issues. So sort of where there's conflicting tension between economic development and environmental policy.
0: Um, Okay. So what are, what are some examples or like an example of what you've seen as far as like the conflicting tension then?
1: Well, so Bali, which is the like first stop there, it's kind of development for tourism, not necessarily Mm -hmm. ecotourism, just tourism in general Okay, is being able to maintain a traditional way of life. So the, the rice farmers there have a very intricate system. It's called the subak system, but it, it sort of ties culture, agriculture, and religion. And it's a a complex adaptive system and has been written about um, in anthropological literature and biological literature, Um, but sort of a very novel situation that is being forced out more or less because of tourism and the price of of land. And so rice farmers are expected to pay the same price that a, a giant hotel could could bring in essentially. Um,
0: Uh, Okay. So it's driving out the locals from their own mm -hmm. heritage and land essentially is kind of, oh, that's really, really difficult. Do you mean with like the locals and the government and stuff?
1: Yeah. So it's a very sort of hands-on, on on the ground course so that we work with um, local researchers who are there, but also get to talk to rice farmers. Um, When we move on to Sumatra, we're we have guides there that have been part of the course for years, but we talk with farmers in Sumatra and go there. It's a different thing with palm oil. And so we go to palm oil plantations and they have to sort of combat that ecotourism that focuses on, on the, the jungle, the rainforest and conservation and protection. And so we get to meet with locals there and kind of talk about some of the issues that they've experienced. Um, And similarly in, in Sulawesi, it's focused on the, the Marine side of things. Um, so with the coral triangle and coral reef protection, and then we go to Jakarta and that's where now that they've, students have had the opportunity to see everything in person and on the ground, then talk to the folks that are involved in policymaking in Jakarta. Okay. And kind of wraps it all up in the yeah. end, doing, looking at this sort of top down, even though the the course itself focuses on a bottom up
0: approach. Right. I mean there's a lot there's a lot to that so like so the issues with palm oil for anybody that doesn't know it's they're clear-cutting forests correct because palm oil is a really good preservative and it's found in most things really in most packaged goods so there's there's a movement to kind of like correct that and put push towards ecotourism and preserve the forest is that what the, the policy is supposed to be?
1: Yeah and so they and they've gotten a lot of big names like Leonardo Di, Leonardo DiCaprio has been involved over with the it's the looser ecosystem gunung looser Okay and there's been a lot of press surrounding it um but trying to make it so people can still have a a livelihood so there are people still making making their livings off of the forest and some of it may be through sustainable palm oil rather than big clear cutting swaths um, but there's also folks that are are making a living from rubber, and so there's um, rubber plantations, which are much less sort of um, don't have the same sort of big impact on the the environment. And so people can can grow and and work to get rubber, um, also just growing other crops instead of diversifying kind of what they're making a living off of.
0: Okay, that makes sense. And then going to the Coral Triangle, like what issues are you seeing there?
1: Um, so Indonesia has sort of taken a very, um, proactive approach to try to combat illegal and unregulated fishing. And so we get to meet with people there that are part of the Coral Triangle Initiative. Um, Mm -hmm. but looking at how they're trying to keep illegal fleets from coming in Indonesian waters and, and fishing, they've established marine protected areas in different parts and with different, so different Forms of marine protected areas, so they're not necessarily all no take, but in a way that is sustainable and, and can help people continue making a living again off of off of their resources without um, impacting it too much. But there, it's more of an, an issue with outside fleets coming in, and so foreign fishing fleets coming in and trying to, to fish Indonesian waters, and they've done it to where um, they've actually sunk some of those ships. <laughs>
0: In, um, so is that... so, so like the Indonesian Navy like goes out and is like, no? Like it's, it gets that hardcore. Yeah. I guess that's... it's ineffective. Um <laughs> I mean, I would think if another country's boat got sunk in Indonesian waters, they would think twice about fishing there. That's that's a tactic. I kinda like it. <laughs> and he mentioned you went to Germany as well.
1: Yeah, so I had um a very non- sort of marine collaboration that Mm -hmm. I work oysters into, but um, I've been part of a a group that is focusing on, on landscape and soil dynamics over time and how that has influenced people's use of land and specifically looking at how people um, view land and looking at the dichotomy of it being favorable or unfavorable, but kind of turning that around because that thinking of it that way, is um, a little too rigid. And so something could be favorable. For example, like with, with oysters, bottom that is barren bottom and unfavorable for natural oysters to grow is favorable for clams or good mm. bottom to have oyster farms um, use. And so it's kind of looking at at how humans have interacted with landscapes over time. And so we got to go to Germany the first year and um, look at some archaeological sites, as well as some sort of current landscape, current farm um, landscapes. And then since then, the Germans were able to travel here. So our collaborators, which is soil scientists, archaeologists, as well as cultural anthropologists. Um, But we were in in Maryland and up in New Hampshire the second year, and then last year in uh, Columbus, Ohio. And so it's it's a, a different approach for me, because we're looking at a you know, looking in the into the past and bringing it forward into the future. Um, but it's been kind of a another opportunity that I had because I went back to school.
0: <laughs> That's really cool. So how, what schools did you pick and why? Like you grew up in Michigan, correct? Yep. So
1: I, I grew up in Michigan. I had applied to, I'd applied to in-state and out-of-state schools, but had always been leaning towards University of Michigan- grew up as a Michigan fan. And so that was just kind of, you know, where I, I saw myself going. And for undergrad, I went there and didn't really have a definite plan of what I wanted to do. I had started thinking I was pre-vet, um, did all the pre-vet requirements, but my junior year, sort of the end of junior year, decided that wasn't the path that I wanted to take. Wanted to, to look into marine biology, but more so looking at it from a sort of human impact on marine systems and doing toxicology work and didn't have the research background at that point. So I took a year off between undergrad and grad school and interned down at the Moat Marine Lab in Sarasota, Florida, in an ecotoxicology lab. And so I was looking at petroleum um, impacts and so looking at samples that were collected in Alaska to see if there were still long-lasting effects from the Exxon Valdez oil spill. Um, And that sort of, I I knew then that I didn't want to spend, My time in a lab, like I enjoyed the work. It was fun, but I I wanted to do more field, field science, Um, but ended up going for my master's to UNC Wilmington,
0: where use UNC because it's got a good marine program. That's usually why people go there.
1: Yeah. And so that has a good marine biology program. And when I started applying, knowing they had a, a really strong aquatic toxicology program too. So that was what first sort of caught my eye about them ended up not doing toxicology for my master's, um, ended up doing work with birds. And so I found an advisor there who I wanted to work with, who also wanted to work with me, um, which is ideal.
0: Beautiful. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) And so I did my master's, my degree was marine biology, but my, um, my project was working with marsh sparrows. So I spent a lot of time in the salt marshes of North Carolina and was looking at Sparrow foraging ecology, and so looking at what they were eating and where, and so I was doing isotope analysis to show we had birds that were were wintering in North Carolina, but summering up in parts like all across the the continent essentially, so there were some that were up on the Atlantic coast, some inland and like north of the Great Lakes, and then some even further west, and you could see that
0: through their isotope signatures and their their blood and feathers. Wow, I didn't know that you could pull that much information from feathers.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so looking at kind of what plants they were eating, okay, their 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 feathers, and so you could see that they were eating different different carbon signatures, essentially depending on where they were coming from.
0: That's really fascinating. So does that did that kind of help like prove their migratory routes or just like?
1: So it helped. It showed that we had these different populations that were all wintering in North Carolina. And then that project served as the, the foundation for future work that not I didn't do, but other students. So a Ph.D. student who followed me was doing mercury work. And she ended up actually like physically tracking the birds back to their their breeding grounds. And so like in the summer, she would go up and, and sample there as well
0: as in North Carolina in the winter. OK. Wow. Very cool. So you're the jump off point. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. So you graduate UNC Wilmington. Mm-hmm. with a dream in um, biology and you have your sparrow work under your belt and then and then what what did you decide to do
1: so I had started while I was still in school at Wilmington I started working for Audubon North Carolina as a biological technician okay. and so I stayed there for a bit and so I was essentially doing um, coastal bird work and working mostly along the Cape Fear River and the like barrier islands of Southeast North Carolina, doing uh, shorebird surveys, nest monitoring, spending a lot of time on, on beaches and on boats, which was always nice. And also did a project in the swamps of North Carolina. And this is kind of where I I sort of traced my current role back to this project a little bit, but working in the swamps, it was myself and one other biologist looking for the ivory billed woodpecker. Um, So we would go canoeing, early in the morning we'd drive out there so we could be there at dawn and canoe through these swamps and do point counts to to identify all the birds that were out there but also looking for this presumably extinct bird in the swamps of North Carolina. When we were there there was some communities that we needed access to human communities to be able to to get to certain parts of the swamp and so there was a a certain level of trying to, to establish relationships and build rapport with this community that then were super helpful. We were able to to talk with them, to see if they had any indication that this bird was around. And they could look at pictures of the ivory-billed woodpecker and the pileated woodpecker that, like, to the untrained eye, look pretty similar, pretty identical. But they were able to look at the pictures and know, like, we've seen this bird. They saw the pileated, could point where it was nesting and knew the call, but didn't know the ivory bill, had never seen it, never heard it. And so it was like a very sort of clear indicator that local knowledge was extremely useful in that situation to, to know where to look for the bird if they, you know, thought the bird was there, that
0: sort of thing. Okay. Um, Did you ever find it? No. Oh, bummer. Nope. So you got some nice canoe time in.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Got to see a lot of cool stuff. Never thought I would miss those, those mornings in the canoe, but there are are certainly days now where I kind of wish I could, could go back to it.
0: (laughs) I, it's funny, Field work can be like that. Like in the moment, you're like, oh, why am I doing this? And then you look back and you're like, no, that was really actually a lot of fun. <laughs> I don't know that my
1: partner from that project wishes she was back in the swamp, but... <laughs>
0: <laughs> you worked for Audubon for how long?
1: After I graduated, I was there for another, not quite two years, I think.
0: And then what brought you to Maryland.
1: So I was moving to Maryland, was looking for sort of any job that could fit the bill. You know, I was I was looking for a job that was relevant, but had applied at a very large scale. So I was applying to like teaching positions at community co- colleges there, all sorts of stuff. But it ended up just sort of kismet about two weeks before I was moving to Maryland, a position opened up in um, Ken Painter's Oyster Research Lab at the University of Maryland. And so they needed they needed someone who had boating experience as well as dive experience, and um, it it worked out. And I was hired to work in that lab, and so that's what sort of shifted me from birds into the oyster world. And now here I am, almost ten years later, still still doing oysters. Um, playing
0: with oysters, they're so fun, though. <laughs> so I kind of touch on your boat and dive experience because you are actually quite experienced in both. When did you get dive certified and how did your level progression go? Because you're a master diver, right? Or dive master. I'm
1: a master, yeah. And so I started when I was living in Florida for that year, sort of that gap year between my, uh, my bachelor's and starting my master's. I got certified when I was living in Sarasota, which was a nice place compared to, you know, getting certified in Michigan and cold Great Lakes. But yes. so I got certified down there and had just done recreational diving when I was, there and in North Carolina, and wasn't really thinking about bumping up certifications. But then when I moved to Maryland and started working in the lab, so one of the first things I got then was to be scientific diver certified. So I got the AAUS, the American Academy of Underwater Sciences, science diver certification, which is a requirement to to work in a a diving research lab at the university. That's when I started getting more interested in, in sort of ramping up my my dive stuff there and so part of it was just to to have more training and more skill for the job like it was it was useful and so I did my advanced diver rescue diver and dive master all while living in Maryland didn't pursue the instructor but maybe will at some point still keep it in the back (laughs) pocket yeah you know once I'm out of school might be something to, to go back to
0: what did what did your checkout dives look like in Maryland Every time I talk to anybody that gets dive certified in Maryland, they're like, "I went into a quarry." I'm like, "Is it was that the same thing for you?" Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. yeah. So, um, there's a couple different quar- quarries in the area, but yeah, it was in a quarry, so it wasn't especially warm. Um, it wasn't especially clear, but having dove in the bay, you know that we probably have a different level of what is good vis. So the, the for me, the quarries weren't that bad. I've definitely had less visibility in the Chesapeake. It was not maybe the most exciting sort of checkout in terms of the flora and fauna that you see. We're
0: still breathing underwater. It's cool. It is cool. Your captain's license, because you do have your captains, Mm. which level is that?
1: So my captain's license is a master 50 ton. So I can, I can captain a boat up to 50 tons um, and get paid to do so, I guess. But so that I had started when I worked for Audubon, I was driving, um, Small boats. So, like, uh, we had like skiffs that we took out through the marshes and a little, like, uh, 19 foot little V hull. Um, so, I had a, a lot of small boat experience when I moved to Maryland. And then the plan was that I would start working my way to to run that boat. And so, we had a, a 36 foot um, boat, which you, you've been on, you've dove off of. Part of my sort of role in the lab was they they paid for the the coursework so I could get my captain's license and so I got my captain's license. Um, maybe the second year I, I started working for the university okay. and, and maintained it since then. Um, and because I've spent a lot of time on on work boats, um, had the opportunity to have that higher tonnage. Because of the essentially working on the dead rise boats in the Chesapeake. Explain what a dead rise boat is.
0: Is that just the big oyster boats?
1: Yeah, so those are the the boats that usually have a a fairly low draft and the back is pretty open so that they can pull dredge you know dredge oysters in have tongs that come in and then mm-hmm. it's got a little cabin up front. So when you think of the the sort of typical commercial fishing boat on the Chesapeake Bay.
0: Those are the, the dead rises. I, didn't, I don't think I actually know what they were called. <laughs> Just commercial fishing boat. So you are at Painter Lab mm-hmm. and diving for oysters and restoring the bay, one oyster, or thousands of oysters <laughs> at the time. So do you want to kind of go through the work that was involved with that? Because I know the diving aspect, mm-hmm. which I like to cover, but then there's also a lot of behind-the-scenes lab stuff that I was not a part of.
1: Right. So uh, the work there doing the the monitoring, essentially, we had the diving, so we would go out and survey bottom before oysters got put down to make sure that they were going down on a, a suitable place to, to plant oysters. And so, then, yeah, so that it wouldn't be somewhere where they're just going to sink in the mud or get covered over by sand. Um, it would be something where an oyster could thrive. And we would go back to see how they were growing a couple months after planting. So another boat would go and plant the spat on shells, so the baby oysters that had been settled on all sorts of old oyster shell. And we'd go back, see how they were growing, get an estimate of how how much they had grown, how many were alive, that sort of thing. And then go back several years later to do the same sort of thing, but working with watermen to survey from from one of these workboats with patent tongs. So we would bring up oysters at a a larger scale and do a, a gridded survey. And so, all of that was just to to see how restoration was was working, and if if the oysters were were successful, if they were alive, kind of what they looked like. But then, on the other side of that, in the lab, we were also looking to see um, if they were healthy. So we were testing them for a disease that oysters get um, in the Chesapeake and along kind of all along the Atlantic and Gulf, but Dermo. Mm-hmm. And so we would look for evidence of Dermo and kind of keep track how how it was moving through the population. And um, we also had students that are in the lab. And so we were working on a lot of helping with student projects. And so some of it involved, we would go and dive to to help facilitate whatever their project was. But we had students doing oyster physiology stuff in the lab, looking at oyster heart rate and the effects of, of oxygen levels on, on their physiology. And so we had a, a lot of stuff going on and like undergraduate students also coming through and doing sort of mini projects and shorter projects at any one time, there were usually probably four students who were doing their own experiments in the lab, helping keeping it all going,
0: Wow, ok. I don't, yeah, I guess I didn't realize like how integrated the lab was outside of the oyster restoration. there was there's actually a lot more research being done on the oysters themselves. Dermo, that's the oyster. it like essentially kills the oyster. That doesn't affect humans, correct?
1: Correct. Yeah, you can eat an oyster with dermo and totally fine. No, no issues, but it it could wipe out a, an oyster reef um, if the conditions are right. And so it thrives in, in saltier water. And um, so if we have a extended drought, then we may see higher levels of, of dermo and could see oysters die off because of it. And a lot of times they make management decisions. So they may opt to, to harvest if there's a high dermo load. And it's recommended, like for oyster farmers, that if they are concerned that they have dermo, they should get the, the oysters out of the water. People can eat them then and it's fine. But then that will minimize the spread of dermo.
0: And it kills oysters and doesn't affect humans. Mm-hmm. So we are diving in the bay. We're managing a lab and realized like this was not like the end all be all. You wanted to do something different.
1: I didn't like I knew that I wasn't going to be doing the oyster lab forever. Essentially, like I, I knew that going in, Um, even though I enjoyed it. But I always was interested more in sort of the human side of of fisheries management and especially like having the chance to go out and work with watermen and, and talk with them and sort of Um, get their perspective and and talk you know management issues with them that sort of thing was was more interesting to me and even like when I was working for Audubon I got to do like tours and lead bird walks and so I always enjoyed that sort of that interaction with with people to, to talk about you know talk about the science talk about the the fishery whatever the case may be and so I started looking at essentially I was looking at jobs that really interested me. And for all of those jobs, I didn't quite have the skill set needed. I didn't have the social science background needed. And so that's when I started looking at going back to school for my PhD. And when I started looking, I wasn't necessarily going for full anthropology, but as I was looking at programs and, you know, the work that was going on, it just made more sense for me to sort of go all in. And so now I'm in an anthropology PhD program, which just happens to be at Maryland. Um, I had been looking at other, other schools But um, it came down to I found an advisor there who I just I really liked the way she talked about her own research and felt like we, you know, we're on the same sort of page in that sense, even though she was working on projects that were different. So looking at um, some like ethnobotany, so looking at how people are using plants and other um, management issues with elephants in Africa. And Mm -hmm. so she had been working in Mozambique and had worked in Tanzania Um, She's currently doing project with vultures in South Africa, Mm. but looking at sort of the same sort of things that I was interested in and sort of community level. So bottom up management and, you know, talking to people about about issues that they were having and trying to get their their messages moved through also. And she would describe her work much more eloquently than that. But
0: <laughs> no, I mean that sounds totally fascinating as well. I love love the African elephants. And I did know that vultures were an issue down in South Africa. So that's that's really interesting that there's stateside work being done for it too. Where does the funding for your research come from then primarily? Because I feel like that's like a huge thing with any research, whether it's PhD program or nonprofit or anything.
1: So, for me, um, I've been very fortunate with funding, but had to like I have applied for and sought the funding that I have. And so, I have funding through the National Science Foundation, mm-hmm. which um they have a graduate research fellowship program which will pay my stipend. so i had I applied for that my first year of grad school that first semester and was awarded it and able to postpone it. So I was a teaching assistant for the first three years of my degree. and like that that was how I got paid. And then started drawing on this GRFP fellowship for the the final three years. And so I'm able to, like, I've been on the road since May and able to do that because I have that fellowship to to pay my stipend. Um, But I also have for the research side of things. I had a um, coastal resilience and sustainability fellowship from Maryland Sea Grant that funded my research in Maryland. And so, the first part of my dissertation was two years of field work in Maryland, funded by Sea Grant. And then, for the second part, the the road tour that I'm on now um, is another NSF, so another National Science Foundation um, grant. It's the doctoral dissertation research improvement grant. And then I also have had some smaller funding. And again, this is like you just kind of got to keep keep moving, keep looking and seeing what's out there. And so I have funding from the Explorers Club of Washington, um, Explorers Club of Washington group. So it's based in Washington, D.C., but funds projects sort of all over. And so they have also contributed funding for my my work right now. And then some smaller stuff from within the university helped get my fieldwork initially started. So I had the Dean's Research Initiative, which paid for that first summer of fieldwork.
0: That's awesome. So you just kind of like keep your ear out and keep mm-hmm. looking at the internet and just apply yeah. for whatever. Like
1: there's certainly things that I've applied for and haven't. So like, it's not like I have a whole 100%, you know, success exactly. rate with all on the applications, but have done well enough to cover what I'm doing.
0: Yeah, to keep the research going. Okay, I think that's really important to note. How did you come up with your dissertation. So, it's officially titled and I wrote it down, so, Understanding Decisions to Participate in Oyster Aquaculture in Maryland and Implications in Livelihood Diversification Diversification on Resilience. Is there <laughs> how is this all tying into your oyster tour? So that
1: part the understanding participation was my first project in Maryland and so that was the technically for the department it's pre-dissertation research because I started it before defending my proposal. And so that part was the part funded by Sea Grant, and it really gave me, one, it gave me the chance to, like, to dive in with qualitative data collection, which was new to me. You know, I, I had measured oysters and, you know, done sort of all this sort of quantitative data analysis, but talking with people in a formalized research fashion was new, and so that project enabled me to to get my feet wet doing that and really start to get a feel for the methods and how it would transition to the full dissertation, and so I had that one, um, which essentially started because in Maryland there's a lot of um, a lot of politics surrounding oysters, which is the case anywhere. But so in Maryland, there's a, a lot of tension between how the sanctuaries are managed. So all the, the area that's closed to public, public, public harvest, the public fishing bottom, which when the sanctuaries expanded, some of the, the, the public bottom was also wrapped up into those sanctuaries. And then there had been lease law changes in 2009 that took effect in 2010 that really opened the door for um, an expanded oyster aquaculture industry. And so there's just a a lot of conflict surrounding it. Um, Some of it hyped up more than it, I think, needs to be and is in talking like one-on-one with people. But so I was interested in that. And so I really wanted to know who was doing aquaculture in Maryland and for our commercial fishermen or watermen. you know, were, how many of them were doing it? What were their thoughts on it? And for those that weren't, why not? And so that's kind of what what started. And that was the initial sort of question, um, who was doing aquaculture and for watermen who weren't, why not? But in doing that, so I I worked with folks for two years interviewing commercial fishermen and um, oyster farmers kind of all over Maryland throughout Tidewater, Maryland, along the Chesapeake Bay, as well as over on the Atlantic coast and our coastal bays. And what was coming up um, kind of again and again for the, the why they've decided to do aquaculture or not. And in my interviews, those ones were long and had lots of questions. And so <laughs> it was it was more than just simple, like why, but right. the response for most people was more social in nature, more personal. So doing aquaculture was a way that they saw, they felt more comfortable having this business that they could pass on to their child than mm. commercial fishery or the wild fishery, for example, or, you know, for some people they that didn't come from traditional working on the water, they saw aquaculture as just a, a sort of different way to make a living that they just felt mm. better about, or, you know, the change that they needed. They weren't happy with where they were in their life at that moment. And this was sort of this little shining, you know, opportunity that they could feel good about. And then for the same thing for the folks that weren't doing aquaculture, it's not a, it's not a necessarily I'm against the practice of aquaculture or, um, you know, they, it's not necessarily aquaculture itself, but there are more personal reasons. For some people, you know, they've been working the water for so many years and weren't ready to at this point in their life to, you know, take on a new business. Because aquaculture is, you're growing oysters, but it's a very different practice for most people than what they were doing before, um, depending on how they're growing oysters. And so it was more thinking about this, the like social side and, and the, the personal connection to why folks were doing it that has turned into the, the current project um, where talking about ecosystem services. So the benefits that people get from their environment, from the ecosystem, there's one category of service called cultural services that nobody really talks about. Um, They, they don't talk about as much as the other services. So like oysters filter the water, they provide habitat and we Mm -hmm. hear all about those environmental benefits, but haven't done as much work to look at the, the cultural side and the social benefits that they may get. And so that's what I'm trying to do now is document these cultural ecosystem services and, um, see how they compare from working in a wild fishery to working in aquaculture. And so I go around and talk to people. Um, I joke like the short name for this project is just what's good. And I ask people what's good about their work. What do they like about it? And trying to see how, how these two different types of fisheries compare.
0: I, that's absolutely awesome, actually, because I think that's a conversations that kind of need to, like, happen, and I think, like, talking talking more is always a good thing, rather than, like, oh, it's the wild caught versus the, the aquaculture, which is, from the outside looking in, that's very much what it looks like, and it's mm-hmm. good to know that it's not. it doesn't always feel that way, and you can, like, switch and transition and stuff. I think that's one of the things that struck me the most when I was living in Maryland was that there was such, like, a big cultural heritage around the water, like, Mm -hmm. the term waterman doesn't really exist in Florida. Like it's very much like a, and I'm sure you found it kind of in Louisiana a little bit too, but like I mostly knew it only in the Chesapeake Bay. So it very much is like a cultural identity that people associate themselves with and their heritage with is watermen working on the water and whatever. So do the aquaculture people consider themselves watermen still?
1: It depends. So it's different in different locations. Um, and so, like, in Virginia, for example, because they've had a history of of working least bottom um, at a large scale for much longer, there's less of a distinction. In Maryland, it, like, from the folks that I've talked to, it's very much watermen and then folks who are growing oysters, oyster growers, farmers, aquaculturists. And there are some that are doing both, and so they see themselves as both. But for the most part, people who are farming oysters are not identified as watermen. And I've talked to people who see that, but maybe in the future, as you know, as the industry changes, maybe, you know, they are the new watermen. But um, in general, there is the the recognition that it's not the same as the the wild catch watermen.
0: Okay, that makes sense. Why the tour then? So you started in Maryland, which has this really (laughs) cultural heritage of working the water, and then you are touring Gulf of Mexico and then New England, right? Yeah. And, and is that just primarily because they have such like history of working the water and specifically oysters?
1: Right. And so I wanted to go outside of of Maryland to to make sure if I'm trying to describe these benefits that are coming from an oyster fishery
0: mm-hmm. to
1: make sure that it it's the fishery overall and the practice of working oysters and see how it it differs from region to region. So I now have um, essentially two a little bit more than two, but what started out as two states in each region. Um, And so I'll be able to compare if there are regional differences in the way people are thinking about oysters and the the benefits that they get um, from working with oysters. And then within that, there's also a different age of industry, um, different histories of industry to see how how these sorts of site-specific differences and these unique characteristics may influence um, how these benefits are perceived and so, like, for example, I'm in Florida now um, and staying in Cedar Key, which Cedar Key is, is known for its clam production. And so they have a, a really long history of of growing clams and clam aquaculture. But they also have folks who are growing oysters, not nearly as many as who are growing clams. But mm-hmm. one of the things that's interesting to see is how maybe clam culture has paved the way for a different mindset for oysters. And I don't know if that that'll be true or not. You know, that's one of the things that I'm... I'm looking at, but there could be these sort of um, circumstances in each place that make people think about it differently.
0: Or it could be that they all think the exact same way at every single site. And, you know, yeah. Interesting too. That would be interesting. I doubt, I don't think that would be the case, but you know what? Right. No, that's why you asked the question, right? (laughs) So steps for oyster aquaculture. You would get spat or colch from I mean, culture is just bad on shell, correct?
1: So the the culture is the little tiny bits of shell, and so people will will depending on how it's set. So some people are are setting their own and have you know people have their own hatcheries, and so they're spawning oysters themselves. But they'll um, go from spawn to settle. They have some that is list and so they're they're on essentially little like tiny grains that oysters will settle on, and so then that's what you'll see in a lot of the container culture. And so when you think of an oyster farm and picture the like floating gear, that sort of thing. So they're usually a culturist set. And so they have single oysters that are growing out, you know, to whatever size market sizes in that, that region or spat on shell, which is what you don't see as often outside of the Chesapeake um, so -hmm. far that I've noticed. And so we see more in the, in the Chesapeake for the on bottom leases, folks will do spat on shell, um, sort of the same way that they're restoring oyster bars there, but so they'll have shell that has oysters that have settled on it, and they plant
0: that on the bottom, and then come back
1: and, and get it when it's ready to to sell.
0: Okay, so spat on shell is, I'm, for anybody that doesn't know, is you have you have oysters in a lab, and oysters are broadcast spawners, so you have the, the game needs meat in the water column, and they've float around for a couple of weeks, and then essentially they settle down onto a hard surface. And their favorite thing is oyster shells. And so once it's settled, it's called a spat, and that's what spat on shell is. So culture is essentially the same thing, just in smaller bits. Is mm-hmm. that what I'm understanding? Okay. All right. So then aquaculture, you get your culture spat on shell, and then you can put it on, what are your options? You can do cages, hard bottom, like what are the different aquaculture realms that you've been seeing?
1: It'll depend on sort of regulations by state and what's allowed. Um, In the Chesapeake, so in Maryland and Virginia, there are some people that will put spat on shell directly on the bottom. And so they have to make sure that just like with our, you know, diving on possible restoration sites, they have to make sure that the bottom is suitable to have oysters on it. So that usually involves a certain degree of preparation of adding shell first before they can set their oysters on it. Um, and then they go back and harvest it and can do that sort of any way if they want to dredge up their, their oysters, if they want a patent tongue, if they want a hand tongue, mm-hmm. um, the same way that the, you would work in the traditional wild catch fishery. Or there's people that are using containers. And so you'll hear um, it described as water column culture. And mm-hmm. so depending on where you are, there's also different ways people are doing it. But so that some people have bottom cages where it's a, a big cage that has feet on it that um, ex- keep it from sinking all the way in the bottom. But mm-hmm. so they'll grow oysters on bottom. They have to pull the cages up. Usually they have like a, a big winch on a boat that they'll pull cages up mm-hmm. uh, different places. So I haven't been there yet, but up in New England, they might have these intertidal oysters that are growing in a, a rack and bag system. And so they can just walk out and they have oysters that are in containers still, but on the bottom, slightly raised um, mm-hmm. little racks or there's floating gear. And so you'll see... In much of the sites that I was at um, in the Gulf so far, they have floating gear. And so they may be these baskets that are kind of um, Mm mailbox-shaped that will hang in a a long-line system. And so they also will rock and the oysters will get tumbled. Um, But they're growing oysters in these these surface baskets that, depending on how they're set up, may be exposed at low tide, may not be. Or there's floating cages that will have big pontoons. Um, And when I say big, they're probably maybe four feet long. Um, okay. but they'll, they'll float at the surface with a cage underneath that has oysters in it. And then people can flip them to dry the cages because they'll get covered with with algae and different sort of oyster predators that may be in there and things that could slow growth. And so they can flip it to dry it for a certain amount of time, um, usually not a whole lot more than 24 hours. Um, but then they can flip them back over then, and then the oysters can be in the water and feed. Okay. There's a, a variety of different container types that people are using in different ways that they're growing.
0: Okay. And the benefit of tumbling from my understanding is that you, so oysters, when given the chance, they'll just kind of grow in their own reef and they'll kind of grow on top of each other and grow all different ways and shapes and stuff like that. And when you are selling an oyster, you want it to be that perfect, like semicircle almost looking thing, like perfect shell, right? So you tumble it to keep it in that perfect shape.
1: Yeah, and so they'll and you'll see that for the like oysters that are going to the half shell market. So peop- oysters that are getting shucked um, and you know to go into a can of oyster meat, for example, or to go to to be fried, that sort of thing. That they don't really care about the shape as much. But when you're going to a, an oyster bar, for example, that's serving oysters on the half shell, that's where they want that pretty shell. It'll be thick and tumbling will help sort of break growth to make it have that nice thick cup.
0: What are some of the challenges that? aquaculturists face so I saw I think it was on your blog you mentioned that you had a really rainy or Alabama experienced a really rainy December and so that affect their fishery there was a closure because of bacteria counts is that really common in super rainy events like how how does that all kind of work
1: yeah so just like um I mean just like a wild oyster fishery the oyster growers are at the whim of mo- mother nature and mm-hmm. so typically Kind of across the boards, if there's major storm events, they'll they'll be closed. And it doesn't have to be a hurricane. It just could be heavy rain. But in the case of Alabama, they had um, so much rain in December that they have the dam that gives like the water level that they base their closures on, which has to be at eight feet or less for the harvest areas to be open, was at almost 15 when I got there. And so they had to wait for it to drop seven feet before they would be able to harvest in most of the areas. Not all of them, but most of them. And so like, there's always that issue. And so depending on what, what rainfall has happened, you know, they could be closed because of that. It could have um, the opposite effect. If there's a drought, that's where you may see higher salinity and then more dermo. So they could be at a greater risk of oyster disease if they have no rainfall and the same thing, depending on how the oysters are growing and what sort of container a storm could bring lots of sediment that, that covers and, and suffocates their oysters.
0: Okay. Which begs the argument for floats in places okay. that experience high sedimentation rainfall. So who usually does the, the water quality testing? Like, is it on the farmers to test the water and then report it? Or is it like the health department or?
1: um In most places, it's someone who's like affiliated with a state agency. So depending on what, what state it's in, but some sort of health department and they'll have, Testing stations also varies by state, how many stations they have and and that sort of thing. In my experience, it's not the growers that are, are testing. They may try to do that also just for their own, their own interest. It goes back to a state agency having to verify. Okay.
0: From my experience, like the benefits of aquaculture are, you know, oysters filter water. It's 50 gallons a day. It's like bathtub-sized for... You know a little bit of perspective, which is really beneficial for areas that do have a lot of you know water quality issues or shedding rainfall. Aquaculture like lets you have the oysters in the water, filtering the water, and then you still get to harvest them. What are like what are the other kind of benefits of aquaculture over a wild caught fishery?
1: Well, it it all comes down to to management. So wild caught isn't necessarily bad; it just needs to be effectively managed. from a like a human standpoint and human involvement on the one hand, aquaculture can provide opportunity for people to, to get involved in a a water related industry that maybe wouldn't have had that opportunity before. Um, Mm -hmm. Not everybody, you know, has the connections or the capital to be a, a commercial fisherman. And so Mm -hmm. this giving some people, you know, the chance to have that sort of experience working on the water. People are able to grow oysters for, with aquaculture in places that, um, and this is kind of, it has to be, so they're not trying to grow on, on productive oyster bottom, but so they're growing oysters in areas that didn't have bottom be- or didn't have oysters before. Um, and in terms of other benefits, I mean, it's providing all the same sort of ecosystem services as a wild fishery from, a the like environmental and ecological function standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, it's providing habitat, not necessarily the same sort of habitat, Mm -hmm. Um, but it's also, you know, providing a a refuge for animals to, to come and move through. People will see, um, more fish around their farms than there were, you know, before the farms were there. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in a way it mimics, you know, mimics a reef, but there are still some differences. And so it doesn't have the same sort of structure that a, a wild reef would have, but is similar. Okay.
0: Very cool. What's the favorite, what's your favorite part about your research, your job right now?
1: <laughs> I, I just, I get to meet a lot of people. Um, it, it's fun talking to them and kind of hearing their experience. And it's, you know, I'm always learning something new. Like, even though I, I feel like I know a good amount about oysters, I don't know everything. And I'm, you know, every, every person I talk to, I learned something, something new.
0: That's really cool. Fun. Well, I kind of want to go back to Indonesia because you're in the Coral Triangle. Do you go diving while you're in Indonesia?
1: Yeah, so um, as part of the course, we have like a group sort of excursion. And um, if people are scuba certified, they can dive, but otherwise everyone can snorkel. But um, so I have got to the both of the times that I've gone to Indonesia so far, I've been able to, to dive and see lots of cool fish and other critters.
0: That's really neat. Did you see any, was there any, like, bleaching that's prevalent there, or were you, like, is it still really full, lush reefs?
1: So, depending on the site, there um, was bleaching the last time we went when we were in Sulawesi, mm-hmm. not to the extent that I was expecting. Um, mm-hmm. It actually, like, still, a lot of it were still healthy coral, um, but, like, there's there's certainly some.
0: Okay. Well, that's good. At least it's not like it's nice to hear that. At least in the Coral Triangle, it literally has the name that it's not as prevalent. What is your favorite marine creature? My favorite marine creature—that's
1: mm-hmm. tough because I don't think of birds necessarily as marine creatures, but I am still still a little partial to birds. I do I love can
0: black. You say skimmer. shore and swamp birds. We can we can make that stretch. So, what's your favorite bird?
1: The black skimmer—that's my favorite, like coastal bird. Um, they're,
0: they're
1: beautiful. Yeah, they're fun. If I was thinking of favorite in the water, um, that's tough. I have, so I also dive at the National Aquarium. I'm a volunteer diver there. And yes. certainly my favorite um, critters there, which anyone who's on my dive team can attest, I really like the triggerfish and filefish. So they are they are my faves there. Um, and I like the same thing diving, even though you, you'll see, you know, triggerfish all over, they still... Those are the ones I get excited about.
0: I don't know. They're just cool. They do have little personalities. I do find like if there's a trigger fish in the area, they do kind of tend to come check you out, which is really funny. <laughs> That's cool. I did want to touch on your diving at the aquarium. So when did you start volunteering at you? Were, you volunteer and dive at the National Aquarium in Baltimore, yeah. which is really amazing and huge and beautiful and kind of difficult to get a volunteer position at because I think I tried and Mm -hmm. it didn't work out. So how did you end up there?
1: Um, Well, so when I first had like started looking into volunteering, it was while I was working in the lab and doing a lot of the, you know, the field science and the lab science, but not a lot of, of interaction with the, you know, the non-scientists. And mm-hmm. as I had mentioned before, I, I really enjoyed talking to people and sort of mm-hmm. sharing sharing the news about science and, yeah. and, you know, conservation and what's going on. And so I first had applied not to dive to be an exhibit guide. And so I started um, that first year I was in Maryland, I started volunteering as an exhibit guide at the aquarium. Mm-hmm. Um, I was there every Sunday talking to people about, you know, whatever questions they had or whatever exhibits mm-hmm. I happened to be in. So had then started they had diving to clean the dolphin tanks and so you're not diving with the dolphins you're you're in with like hydraulic power scrubbers and it was a day and so when that was an option I I started thinking about that I was like yeah I kind of want to do that and so had applied and had for the to dive at the aquarium as a volunteer you have to like you first have to take an exam and then the you know top however many that make that cut of the written exam, then come in and do an interview and then an in-the-water exam also, like an in-the-water test, a skills demonstration. Um, and so did all of that and was able to to join one of the dolphin dive teams. And so I then was every other Sunday in there scrubbing scrubbing the tanks of the dolphin pool. Then switched over to my current team, um, which I am on leave from right now while I'm conducting my field work. But um Switched over to dive in the Atlantic Coral Reef exhibit and get to do some of the dive talks in Black Tip Reef and um, get to sort of feed fish, clean things, um, continue diving regularly, which is nice. Yeah.
0: And you get to dive in a beautiful coral reef, even mm-hmm. though it's in an aquarium. Yeah. <laughs> That's really neat. I didn't realize that you were in the, the Black Tip exhibit.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I don't get to I don't do any of the like feeding in there, but they do a, a talk in there in, every afternoon. And so I've gotten to to do some of those dive talks with the like full face masks like we used in the, the painter lab. So
0: you're underwater and it's like sharks and and fish and coral is all around you. Mm-hmm. And you're giving a full lecture talk with the face mask on through the comm system.
1: Yeah. And so it's less. there's a, like an educator on the outside of the glass. And so they sort of lead the talk. um, We'll sort of bounce it back and ask questions. And then the the audience, so anyone that's uh, visiting the aquarium can ask questions of the diver that we then
0: answer. um, Okay. That's a cool experience. That's a really neat, that's a really neat concept. I like that. If you have any (laughs) advice for anybody that wants to be a marine biologist or just aspire to their PhD, what advice would you give?
1: Well, I guess it's to be open-minded about what, you know, what a marine biologist is and what you can do with that sort of background and training. Um, I know, so I, I didn't grow up. I wasn't one of those kids that said, you know, in third grade, I wanted to be a marine biologist, um, but kind of had, have taken a path. And I think just to be aware that there's, there's more than what you immediately think of as a marine biologist. And so now I I don't know that I would call myself a marine biologist. I do have the degree and certainly still do marine focused things, Mm -hmm. but like there's a lot of opportunity out there that, that you may not initially think of, but people can do, you know, all sorts of things and still be doing marine biology.
0: That's great advice. That's a really, really great point. (laughs) Awesome. So if listeners want to find you, you have a blog.
1: Yep. Um, so I have my research blog, which has been difficult to keep up with because I'm traveling and living in campgrounds at the moment, but it's um, blog.umd.edu backslash oyster.
0: Okay. I'll put i I'll put a link in show notes.
1: And then um, they can also, you can find me on Instagram and so you can search my name or the, my Instagram handle is two dogs, a girl and an oyster tour.
0: Love it. Where did you get the the name for your handle?
1: So there used to be a show that was two guys, a girl, in a pizza place. Okay, there was actually um, discussions over dinner one night of what I wanted to like rename it because it, my previous name was named after my dogs, um, Ruka and Lucy, and <laughs> I'm trying to think of something that captured the fact that I'm like living in a trailer for the you know, right been in it for almost a year now but that like traveling with these dogs and talking to people about oysters and so i don't know that everyone is familiar with the tv show but i kind of liked it it's stuck
0: it's long but it's very descriptive and i like it and it and you are traveling the u.s in an rv with your dogs in tow and that's really fun well thanks for being on thanks for having me now adrian and i would like to challenge you do you know where your oysters come from Next time you're at a restaurant, ask if the oysters served are farmed or wild-caught. If they're farmed, do they know which farm? The answer may surprise you and spark a fun, interesting dinner conversation. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, please take a moment to subscribe to our channel. It helps other ocean enthusiasts find us. And we'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. R.